I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the social index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. LinkedIn presents... For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Lauren Weinberg. She's the Chief Marketing and Communications Officer at Square. At Square, she's driving marketing and communication strategy globally. She previously held leadership roles at Yahoo, MTV, and AOL. On the show today, we talk about Square's business, how it's dimensionalized today, its ever-expansion. We talk about how Lauren is helping to drive growth through marketing efforts, the impact of data on those marketing efforts, and the curse of incrementalism, or as she likes to talk about, the principled risk that need to be taken by marketing organizations. We've got that and much more on today's show. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Lauren Weinberg. Well, Lauren, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I know. It's an early morning for both of us, but, but we're, we're awake and we're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, I guess, is the word. One of the things, that before we get started to talk about Square, um, which is a fascinating company, I want to talk to you about this story I hear about you buying a house sight unseen and then also moving across the country. Tell me more about this. Yeah. So we were like many other people, pandemic movers. We moved across the country from California to New Jersey. And we have time. We'll talk about why 
we made that move. Um, everyone always asks why we came back from California. The short answer is family, but we moved across the country. We have two, we had two big dogs. Now we have three um, at the time. And so we didn't want to put them under the plane. In fact, one of our dogs is so large, I'm not even sure that he could fit under the plane. And so we decided to drive across the country in an RV to a house that we had bought sight unseen. So lots of interesting adventures. And also because I'm a boy mom, I promised my boys that we would do a lot of really fun and adventurous things like go dirt biking and rent jet skis and just really all the adventures you could imagine on a cross-country trip. That's quite the adventure. And I also moved in there in the pandemic, but we wasn't as far. And so moved from North Carolina to the DC metro area. But I remember driving up, doing day trips to go see houses. Um, And it was so apocalyptic, like no one was on the interstate. So like what normally would take you like four and a half hour drive, I think it was taking us like under four, like three hours and 40 minutes. Probably shouldn't say that out loud because a cop is probably thinking you must have been going (laughs) 85 miles an hour. But, uh, but it was, it was super weird. Did you guys encounter the same thing? Like not a lot of people on the road or did you see a lot of people? It's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I think when you're driving across the country, there's a lot of roads that don't have a lot of people on (laughs) them. That's true. Yeah. (laughs) But there were a lot of people. So we stayed in, our goal was to not eat in any restaurants or to stay in Mm -hmm. any hotels. And so I have never been more organized in my life, but we had (laughs) all of our meals for, I think it was an 11 day trip planned out in advance and frozen and vacuum sealed and everything because we didn't want to have to go inside anywhere. And all of the RV campsites that we stayed at were very busy. Mm, Nice. But it was also at a time where people, it was really early in the pandemic. Um, Mm. And so I think there were certain parts of the country that didn't really think COVID was a real thing. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, I also have, I promise I won't belabor this entirely story, but you have two dogs. I have, or three dogs now. I had have two dogs as well. What kind of dogs are they? They sound So I have a very large Bernadoodle. I I would say he's like a giant size Bernadoodle because I've never seen one as big as he is. Um, (laughs) And a golden doodle. And now we we are fostering a dog after the holidays and uh, foster fail. fail. And so (laughs) we're not really sure what he is. He's small. He's he's some kind of mutt. He's super cute. It looks like mm. he's got some dachshund in him, but he's also got some shaggy hair. He looks like he has a little bit of everything. He's got <laughs> short legs, a long body, shaggy hair, and green eyes. So uh, wow, wow, that is yeah. He's definitely a mix. It was yeah. cool. Well, uh, man, what a what a story. What an experience. I'm sure you guys will remember that forever. Yes. Well. Let's talk a little bit about your career. And you are now the Chief Marketing and Communications Officer at Square. But where'd you get your start? And how'd you end up at Square? So I started off working in the measurement space for a company called Media Metrics. And I, in college, I thought I would either be a journalist or a lawyer. And then I graduated and didn't want to do either one of those things. And so I ended up getting a job uh, working at Media Metrics, which was a company that in the early 2000s was measuring all of the digital properties and, and coming out with like rankings for the top sites. And so that was my first job and my first foray into digital media, media 
And um, it was great. It was really fun. It was obviously a really exciting time. A little bit of the dot-com bubble, then the dot-com bust. Um, but a super interesting time to just be getting your legs underneath you in your career because I was just thrown into really exciting and interesting opportunities that, quite frankly, I had no business doing based on my level of experience. Um, but I think a great way to start your career feeling scared and knowing that you could do things that you've never done before. So that's where I, I really got my start. Um, I moved around to some other companies in that space and then made my way onto the media side of the business where I worked really in B2B, working with the best brands and advertisers for many years at, at AOL and MTV and at Yahoo. And I was at Yahoo for six years before I went to Square. And when I was about halfway through my time at Yahoo, I made a switch from being on the B2B side to the consumer side and really started doing more. I was always involved in marketing, but started overseeing execution of our marketing strategy. And then I had this aha moment where I thought, wow, this is the thing I should have been doing all along. I really <laughs> love this. And when after I left Yahoo, decided that I loved marketing, but wanted to get out of the media space for the first time in my career. And I went and started my own company after leaving Yahoo and did that for a little while, which was essentially doing like consulting and advising in the space, but for all clients that were not in the media space. So it was a little test for myself to see if the skill set that I had was really going to be applicable in other areas. And then I got a call from Square, which seemed just like really like perfect timing because I had been running my own business and Square called looking for a person to come in and, and oversee a strategy for marketing and sales and international growth. And I thought this is super interesting because I've just come off of this experience of running a business and then I'm learning more about Square and I'm kind of blown away by everything that I wish I had known that Square could have helped me do when I ran my own business. And now I've been at Square for six years. Wow. I mean, it's amazing. And, and six years goes fast. <laughs> for sure. Like half of those years are pandemic years. There's something yes. weird about pandemic time that like seems to have slowed down, but sped up at the same time. And so yes. it just feels like it's gone by in the blink of an eye. Yeah. No, I, I, that slow down and speed up or goes fast at the same time. It, it's very true. I don't know how that's possible. It's like we entered a time space continuum or something. <laughs> well, you know, you'd mentioned Square and just the the number of different things that it does. I think most people's probably first experience originally with Square was the little literally white square that attaches to your phone so you can swipe a credit card and transact with small businesses. You guys do so much more today. How do you even how do you dimensionalize, if you will, what Square is today? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And I would say you're right, Square. I would say one of the things that's amazing about Square is that Square started with the purpose of really enabling any individual or business to participate and really thrive in the economy. And so the Little White Reader was initially the thing that we had, which, which just opened up the ability to take credit card payments for an entire segment of small business owners that were just underserved by all of the existing financial institutions. But now it's 14 years later, and we have a full ecosystem of business solutions that include software and hardware that really enable businesses of all sizes and complexity to run their entire operations with Square all over the world. So 
whether you're like an upscale retailer or a multi-location restaurant or a service provider, we literally have everything you need. Banking solutions, payment solutions, the ability to manage your staff, payroll. I mean, you name it, marketing, loyalty. So it really is this operating system for your entire business. I like that analogy. I hadn't thought about that, but the operating system for your business, because you guys do, like you said, you do everything. It feels like, and you, and you serve a vast number of different types of customers and users as well. Like, um, you know, not, you're not just small business, you're medium enterprise, even it's quite complex, quite complex. It is. (laughs) <laughs> How? <laughs> so in in light of that, I mean, you're responsible for marketing overall. Like, how do you think about marketing's role in driving those activities and growth for Square? Yeah. So, I mean, one of my favorite things about my job at Square and how Square works is that we started, as you've stated, really serving this long tail of small business owner with the little white reader. And in order for us to be able to really efficiently and effectively acquire customers, we needed to have a really easy way for them to self-onboard. And so what's fascinating to me about our business is that even as we've scaled the business up market, and yes, we have an outstanding sales team now and the option for larger businesses to speak with sales, we're still onboarding, self-onboarding the majority of our businesses, including the large businesses. And so marketing is really the growth engine for Square's entire business and really drives Square's customer acquisition flywheel. So my team is responsible for the brand, the perceptions, and the acquisition of new customers. And the way that we look at our success is how much revenue we're bringing in from the new customers that we acquire. I mean, that's uh, that's a... I think a lot of CMOs would envy to be in your position, but also potentially scared to be in your your position as well, which is being the flywheel, being directly responsible for the revenue, or at least the the onboarding of that revenue. Have you learned anything over the last six years that you you would advise other CMOs that helps you get comfortable with that? So I talk to my team about this all the time, actually. And I, I think that the way you described it is right. I always say it's a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing because everybody cares about what we're doing because it's such an important part of the growth engine. And so all of your product partners are very invested in what you're doing. And the curse is that everybody cares about what you're doing. And so everybody has an opinion about what you're doing. But I I mean, I think it depends on on who you are. Personally, for me, I love it. I don't know that I... I mean, I love Square as well. But I think being in a position where your contributions to the business are directly tied and it's so important to everything that's happening there is a really interesting place to be. And yes, it's a lot of pressure and there's accountability for a really big revenue goal, but it's exciting. It's fun. I don't think I would be at Square for six years if it wasn't really challenging and exciting and fun. And especially since COVID, I think that the whole macroeconomic landscape has been really unpredictable, which makes an already exciting and challenging job even more exciting and challenging. Well, uh, how I always think about marketing as one part data, one part creativity. How are you using data to help inform your marketing efforts and keep that flywheel moving, if you will? Yeah. I mean, I describe marketing as the same way. It's an art and a science. And I think one of the things that Square 
has always done a great job at long before I ever got there was really using data. And so we are a very data-driven and data-informed organization. So we use data to... I mean, I think one of the things that you pointed out already is that our customers really vary. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we have some really large customers like SoFi Stadium. And we also have some smaller coffee shops and some people who are operating at farmer's markets. And so it really... You know, we have millions and millions of customers on our platform and sometimes when we're in the process of bringing a customer into Square, it's hard to tell sometimes exactly what they're worth. And so we have an incredible analytics and data science team that really help us with value-based fitting, doing lookalike modeling so that we can really find those audiences that are the most valuable to Square. We also use data very heavily to think about where there's the most incrementality in the channels that we use and how do we change our channel mix to improve ROI. We use a ton of machine learning models for targeting on specific channels like direct mail. I mean, we also use data in more qualitative ways to really understand sentiment of our customers and how they're feeling. I think that's especially important just given all of the, I think, headwinds that have been thrown their way over the last couple of years. There was obviously shutdowns during COVID, but then there was supply shortages, staffing shortages, the great resignation, inflation. I mean, you name it. I think like business owners everywhere have really had every hurdle you could imagine put in front of them. And so keeping an ear to the ground and really understanding how they're feeling helps us navigate a tricky landscape in a way that's very in tune to what our customers want and need from us. Well, and you mentioned as well, you believe that it's an art and a science. Is there things that you say, I wish the data could do this, but it's still, I still can't rely on the data entirely? I think that that question for every marketer would have to be just understanding your long-term investments better. Because I think, you know, all of our performance marketing and anything that's meant to drive a short-term conversion is very, I don't want to say very easy, but it's much more measurable than some of the tactics and strategies that we use to shift perceptions, to plant a seed with a business owner who may not be making a decision about their business for another few months. And so those activities and really tying the value of those investments back to your bottom line is the thing that's like the holy grail in marketing that I, I think if if anyone had really figured out how to crack that nut, it would be a whole different industry. But some of those channels are hard to measure. And then I think for us in a in a category where it's a considered purchase, mm-hmm. you know, for larger businesses, it's it's a quite a bit of time that they're in the process of considering, researching and figuring out what's the right platform for them to run their business on. Yeah, no, I I agree. I agree. I'm curious, do you happen to use any sort of like marketing mix modeling on top of things that you're doing as well? I know that's kind of a specific question, but (laughs) just curious. Sometimes I've seen that those, and actually a company that I founded a while back, we were somewhat successful at teasing apart long-term effects, but still hard, still hard to do. Yes, we do. And that's one of the first things that I that I put into place when I started at Square. And we use that to supplement uh, the data that we get out of our attribution model. And it gives us a better view of where we have more room to grow specific channels. And I would say it's been really helpful for us in thinking through what our channel mix should look like and also helps us model what the impact could be of varying levels of investment. So it's definitely a really useful tool to have 
but we also triangulate that against our attribution model as well. So we use both. Yeah, I think I think you still have to like you have to. There has to be like the I would call it like the micro optimization of like the attribution allows you to do. But then to your point, you mentioned it, which is like being able to forecast or plan the big big allocation exercise, if you will. I think that's where marketing mix really helps. Yeah, I actually think there's been more of a shift back, like to using the MMM models. I I think for a while, people were feeling like they could just leverage attribution for everything. And as the media landscape and privacy laws change, there's been this pivot back into having to use MMM data in addition to attribution data. Yeah, I agree. And I I think MMM models have gotten a lot better just with the statistics and math that they're using. Some of the more sophisticated ones I've seen now, like use not to geek out, but I will for a minute, (laughs) use kind of Bayesian statistic approaches that allow you to merge data that you normally couldn't have merged in a marketing mix model. Like you normally wouldn't have been able to put in the granular digital marketing data and expect it to work well with say TV data points. And, And now you can. Uh, and that's that's helpful. That's helpful as well. It me. is very helpful. I agree. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, as the as Square has kind of grown and changed and the brand has shifted, how do you, like all of these different audiences that we've been talking about, how do you educate them, help them understand that what Square can offer to them across so many different types of customers, if you will. Yeah. I mean, so we really think about our marketing strategy from an audience perspective. And so there's key audiences that we're going after. And and I would say the way that we approach how we speak to them and what we're saying really varies. So for example, large retail and restaurant businesses are really important segments for Square. But so are emerging Gen Z audiences. But we also are really focused on how we are speaking to and serving the Black and Latinx communities as well. And so for each of these audiences, we really try to think about, well, where are they? Where are they in their business journey? And we do do campaigns, obviously, a lot of campaigns, but we also leverage content and storytelling and a lot of our organic social channels to develop like content series that are designed to educate business owners in these different audiences and really drive some discoverability for our brand. But also, I would say probably more importantly, 
to begin our relationship with these business owners in a way where they feel like, oh, Square A understands me and is also providing me with education and information that's really going to help me succeed. And so that that's really our approach. And so we have lots of campaigns, but we also have a content series called You Two Should Meet, where we're pairing up to like experienced sellers from different industries to have a really intimate conversation about how they're growing their businesses. We also launched this year Forward, which is a business accelerator program that's designed specifically to help Black and Latinx entrepreneurs obtain capital and get coaching and have access to the products that they need. So it really varies depending on who we're talking about. We're experimenting a lot with how we leverage influencers and channels like TikTok to speak to the emerging and up and coming Gen Z entrepreneurs, because we know they're the most entrepreneurial generation yet. And so the way that they're going to think about their business is going to be different than how somebody who's been a restaurateur for 30 years is thinking about their business. Right. And so when you're planning your marketing, is it mostly always audience first? Like who are we going to try to talk to? And then you figure out what the message or the product is that you might lead with? Is that is that the way to think about it? I think that I would like to say yes to that question, but the <laughs> honest answer is, is we're working our way towards that. I okay. think in the past, so because we're we're a very product-centric organization right. and organization. Yeah. And so, so what happens generally for us is that we think about a couple of things when we're thinking about our plans for the years. It's mm-hmm. what's the revenue goal that we need to go hit? How much money do we have? Then we hear from all of our product partners on what they have going on, mm-hmm. what's coming out, what's the priority for them. And then I think we put this audience lens over it. And that's how we kind of come up with our plan for the year. Like, what are we going to do? Who is it for specifically? And so this year for planning, we actually did have a much more audience-centric lens around what we did. And I think we'll continue to get better at that, quite honestly, so that if you are a customer of ours, it is you don't, it doesn't matter to you which product team or which product we're really talking to you as an individual business owner and surfacing solutions that are the right fit for your business, regardless of where those products sit within our organization. Yeah. No, I think that's pretty powerful. And I know it is hard to get there, especially in companies that have been historically product-driven, but you don't have to worry. In my view, (laughs) view of one, N of one, you don't have to worry as much about the authenticity or is this going to connect because you're thinking about what their needs and wants are first, right? And I think it lends itself to higher engagement levels, if you will, of those audiences. If you get it right, right? I mean, if you have to know them as well, you have to understand what their needs and wants are as well. So that's true. And I I think one of the things that Square does a phenomenal job at, even at the product level, is really putting that audience lens there first. And so all of our product updates, business reviews are always grounded in some sort of truth about a business owner or an insight. And so a lot of companies say that they're really focused on the needs of their customers and what they want. And that's really true at Square. And everybody, I think from Jack all the way down in the organization is very passionate about Square's mission and purpose. And people care deeply about making sure that the solutions and services that we put out into the world are going to enable more people to be successful. They're going to be intuitive to use and they're really solving business owners' biggest challenges. Love that. Well, I was going to... I still want to ask this question. I had it on my list is... But given the light that 
you guys have so much data on your customers. You may even have an insight into this question that I hadn't thought about before now. But we are right now in the early summer months of 2023. It's likely that all forecasts are leading to some sort of recession. It may be a mild or kind of unfelt, quote unquote, recession in the distant future. But in light of this, like marketing is typically the function people come to cut first. And I'm curious how you think about that and how to respond to that if if you're starting to feel that pressure and you're a CMO out there listening to this. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that everybody feels that for sure right now. Yeah. For me, I think it comes down to demonstrating how your investments tie back to business results. Right. That's always been the way that we operate at Square because we are so data-driven. But I think that's the number one thing is every single thing that we do and that we plan for is tied back to some sort of metric of success. And there are different metrics of success, but they're all tied back to our overall strategy. And that helps us stay focused so that we're not spreading our spend out too thin. And then we make sure that our investments are tied back to business results. I think the other thing that you didn't ask me about, but I think that's interesting is like our category is also really competitive. Yeah, And so we try to take principal risks And we want to stay nimble. We want to adapt quickly. We try to really be responsive to the changing needs of our customers and to be really smart about our risk-taking, to not be taking big risks with a lot of money, but to be taking small risks that I think help us learn and grow and stay innovative and break through in a really crowded category. I think the other thing for us is we're a super accountable organization. We uh, tell everybody how much money we have, what we're going to deliver back to the business for that money. We report out weekly on how we're progressing against our goals. We do a quarterly business review where we talk about the things that we learned and we'll share in there. And this is something that's just very much in the DNA of the culture at Square. But hey, we thought this, we did this, it didn't work, but here's what we learned. And that type of learning is very much celebrated in the culture at the company. And so that helps too. But I think being transparent and accountable and talking about the things that you are learning from the things that have not worked well, have served us really well so that we can continue to be innovative, try new things, take principled risks, and then demonstrate how we're impacting the business. Yeah. I mean, that the culture you just described, the accountability, the I'll call it transparency through multiple ways and and various ways and frequencies of communication, what you're doing and what the results are and that culture of learning. I mean, that I've seen where marketers have gone wrong in the past is kind of that doesn't exist one first and foremost. And so there's constantly kind of like a buildup, if you will, of this idea of what we have to go do. And when there's a little ripple of resistance, it can create fireworks. But I think I think given the fact that you're you're constantly communicating as plans are evolving, as plans are changing, you probably eliminate that blow up potential, if you will. Do, do you agree? I, I'm curious if you've seen that at other places. Well, I will I will say in my time at Square, the blow ups that you're mentioning, like when <laughs> I first arrived at the company, were a pretty regular occurrence, and I think a lot of it was just this feeling of marketing is a black box. Right. And marketers feeling like everybody thinks that they can do marketing because that is partially true. And so <laughs> yes. there's a lot of people like 
because marketing is such an important part of the growth engine at Square, you've got a lot of people very invested in what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And you have people who are very smart, who want to learn and are craving information about how, what they can expect from you. And so I think for us at Square, changing the relationship to be really transparent has changed everything for us. And it doesn't mean that all of our product stakeholders are happy with every decision that we make as an organization, because that's definitely not true. There's always people who are disappointed in our support or lack of support for something that they feel is very important for their product. I will say the difference is, is that when they don't like a decision today, they understand how the decision was made and that eliminates the blow up. And so it's not all like roses <laughs> when everyone's happy all the time with what we're doing. But I think the transparency and accountability has really changed the nature of the relationship because we're really clear about how we think about things. We're clear about what success looks like for us. We're clear about how many things we could potentially go do. And that means that we can't do everything. And so, yes, people will be disappointed, but they understand why you made the decision that you made. And I think that's been a game changer for us. I love it. I love it. Great lesson to learn. Well, one of the things we love doing on this show is to kind of switch gears and get to know you a little bit better. We know you've got two boys, three dogs. <laughs> You're a, a, a glutton for punishment in a small RV going across the country. But my favorite question I ask everyone that comes on the show is what experience of your past defines or makes up who you are today? I want to say, I mean, a lot of things have, I think, really define who I am today. But I think there's a couple of key things. I think my first job, just being in an environment where the dot-com bubble had burst and there was a lot of reductions in workforce and being put into a really uncomfortable situation very early on in my career was a very career-defining move mm. for me, whether I realized it at the time or not, because it started me off in my career feeling like it's okay if you there's a lot of stuff that you're doing that you've never done before. And because I was sort of forced into that really early on. And I remember saying to my first boss, are you sure I should be doing this? I don't feel like I'm qualified for this job that you're giving me. And he said, sink or swim, there's a million people that would take your place. Mm. And he was very nice. It wasn't mean, but I think that that sort of has always stuck with me, which, and I thought, yeah, I, I think I'll swim. Um, <laughs> and I think that sort of defined every move I've ever made in my career since that time, which is to take something that scares me. And to have one foot kind of planted in something that I feel I could be successful at and the other one in a really like wobbly place where I don't know if I can do it, but I'm going to, I love to learn and I'm going to try. And I think that has really just grounded me for my career to raise my hand and ask for opportunities and to make kind of these leaps of faith and trust my intuition along the way. And then I think the second thing is probably just being a boy mom, um, you know, like boys are, I love my boys. I, I feel like they've kind of forced me outside of my comfort zone on a daily basis. And my rule as a mom is to, I'll try anything one time. <laughs> and if I really don't like it, then I don't have to do it again. But, you know, boys are really adventurous. My boys certainly are. And they always are wanting me to do stuff with them. And I didn't want to miss out on all the fun that everybody was having. And so I think that's sort of, also is another example of how of, of of something that's really influenced my ability to be comfortable feeling uncomfortable. 
Love it. Well, if you were starting this adventure all over again, what advice would you give your younger self? To really advocate for myself and to trust my intuition. I think that especially as women, it's hard to do this because we're sort of groomed from a very early age that we should be humble. We shouldn't talk about our accomplishments. We should never talk about money. And I've noticed like men are much more likely to be proactive and communicating what they think they're worth. And I talk about this a lot because I've noticed this pattern in myself and I want to break this cycle, which is just like, it's important for women to advocate for themselves. And it probably just took me too long to really learn to trust my intuition and to be comfortable saying what I think I'm worth when it comes to negotiating. And it's something that I see men do really easily. And if I could go back in time, I I would have just told myself to have more faith in myself and to trust my intuition more. I love that. I'm going to share that with my daughter who's 15. (laughs) Because it is, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a societal problem and a norm that we have to break. So, And I think there's like something that we can do or that I try to do as a manager, which is when I notice these things happening on my team or these inequities, because just the men are much better about asking for things to just ask everybody. I mean, yeah. last year I did this around compensation. Some people were coming and saying, here's what's important to me in comp, but it wasn't everybody. So then I reached out to all of my leads and said, what's important to you in comp? Like, hmm. I can't promise that I can get you where you want to go, but tell me like whether it's cash or equity or what's a number that you think makes sense for you. And then it kind of puts everybody on an equal playing field. So I think A, women have to be more comfortable having those conversations. And I also think that there's the role that a manager can play in just asking those questions and encouraging women. And I did not stop until I got that answer from every single person that reports to me. I love that. I love that. Well, what is there? You're in this learning culture, if you will, test and learn and and transparency. Is there any topic that you think marketers themselves need to be learning more about or maybe something that you're trying to learn more about yourself? There's two things for me. One, obviously, and everyone's talking about this, is just generative AI. And we're using that quite a bit already. We're, We're thinking a lot about how we educate our customers in the role that AI can play in helping them as well. And so I think there's just a lot to learn there for everybody, but that's really exciting. And the second area is I think for me personally, is just like figuring out how we can unlock a channel like TikTok for our brand. We know there's billions of business owners on TikTok. And so it's just a matter of like continuous experimentation with different formats. And I think it's a really exciting and fun opportunity too, because it feels like the stakes are low and you can make a mistake there that, I mean, that's actually not that true. You can make a mistake that could be really devastating for your brand (laughs) if you make a really big mistake, but there's a lot of things that you could do. And if they're not, they don't, if the message doesn't land perfectly, it just doesn't get as many views. And so I'm excited for us to keep experimenting in that area to figure out how we can truly leverage that channel more for our customers. Mm, okay. Well, are there any uh, trends or, or subcultures that you're following you think others should take notice of? I mean, we're always following what's happening <laughs> with the audiences that we care about. And so a lot of my friends make fun of me because whatever <laughs> is the latest platform, I'm on it. Um, I was on TikTok 
really early as well, because I just believe that as a marketer, you should be spending time in all the places that your customers spend time. And so since a lot of our sellers at Square happen to be a lot younger than me, like I'm spending time in the places that they spend time. I'm watching the way that like my nephew who's in college and my kids interact on these platforms and I'm on all these platforms. And so I think the thing is just really just observing like Clubhouse came out. I was like, I'm on it. And so whatever is coming out, I'm spending time there just to understand how other people are interacting and engaging in those platforms and on those channels, because really every channel is different and it's not a one size fits all strategy when it comes to marketing. And it's important. I think that's just good advice for all marketers to be, if you're making assets to go on a specific channel, you really need to understand how people are engaging with content in that channel. I love it. I like your experimentation with the channels. I have one follow-on question because I'm curious, like a lot of people see those new channels and then a lot of, it feels like a lot of times we pivot maybe too hard to those channels. Are you approaching those new channels as like experimentation platforms? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. And, and, and also then, like, I make suggestions to my team. Right. <laughs> and sometimes they're like, no way, you know, we don't want to do that. And so it's a lot of give and take. I don't, I don't see us swinging the pendulum too hard into any of those new right. channels. It's for me, it's actually just about spending time there first mm-hmm. and then seeing like whether or not it could be a good fit for us or just even how people are engaging in that. So my first, like I'm experimenting just for myself. Yeah. How do I want to engage in this channel? Do I enjoy this channel? What kind of conversations are happening here? Is this a good place for your brand or not? And then I think that becomes a conversation around it really is about experimenting, Mm -hmm. not investing too heavily. I think that's something that we're working on, which is like, how do we have a very lightweight experimentation framework to just start to test new content strategies in these channels to see what starts to work? Yeah, no, it makes sense. It makes sense. And there is, I mean, there is a first mover advantage to some degree. Yeah. With each of these new platforms, we've seen, you know, new brands take off because of that ability, you know, to to, to capture it and and understand the channel and and maximize its use. So cool. Last question for you. What do you feel like is the largest opportunity or threat facing marketers today? I mean, measurement continues to be a challenge. And so I don't want to say that though, because that just feels like what everybody would say. So (laughs) I want to say it's really about just returning to like a beginner's mindset or a growth Mm -hmm. mindset. And I sort of view like if your budgets are smaller, like how do you think about the way that that type of constraint can really bring innovation and creativity And so for me, it's really about just experimenting, getting scrappy. And how do you continue to act like a startup when you're working in a big company, but you don't lose sight of your ability to be agile, to adopt and address trends in culture and test these new channels? Because you're right, there's definitely a first mover advantage if you can figure it out early on how to unlock some of those channels. And it's been the defining winning strategy for a lot of up and coming brands. Yeah, no, 100%, 100%. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a fascinating conversation. And I feel like I've learned a lot, I've taken a ton of notes, if you could see my page <laughs> in front of me. So thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you so much for having me today. This was really fun and definitely worth the early morning. <laughs> Appreciate it. Hi, it's Alan again. 
Marketing Today was created and produced by me with post-production support from Sam Robertson. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe on marketingtodaypodcast.com. Tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love hearing from listeners. You can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes and links to what was discussed in the episode today. And you can search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today.